I encourage you to exchange your hymnal for a Bible. We'll turn to Exodus 34 this morning, verses 1 through 9 is what we're going to look at in this book. We're going to be completing our time in Exodus in the next uh, few weeks and spend a little bit more time uh, at the end of the canon, some of those shorter uh, New Testament uh, letters. But the beginnings, the foundations of God's uh, plan for all creation, of His redemptive work, starts here. Genesis, Exodus, and the books of the law. And in the last chapter, Moses has prayed to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. This is the mediator of God's chosen people. He wants to know Him more. He wants to be assured of God's presence with Him. He's going to go with Him and go with the people. Maybe that's helped shape your own prayers in this last week or going forward. Lord, show me your glory. I want to know you more. Help me to, to listen and respond uh, in faith to your word. So Moses, in this chapter, he's headed back up the mountain. He gets his own personal sermon uh, from the Lord that we get to uh, listen in on. So beginning in verse 1, chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. Let's pray together. Lord God, it is a marvel that you would speak to us in a way that we can hear, in a way that we can understand, and so we thank you for your word to us. As we have just Sung, Lord, speak to us that we may see great and marvelous things from your word. Lord, show us now. We need your help in this. May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of our hearts in this moment be pleasing and acceptable to you. Lord, we want to know you. We want to see you. And you have told us who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I played organized football for one year, and I'm talking the American football here, one year in high school. And I can still remember some of the facial expressions on Coach Zomerly. Uh, Coach Z had, she had a daughter, he had a daughter in my class, and she was nice, she was easy to get along with, so I thought her dad probably wouldn't be all that bad. And then I showed up for practice, the first practice late summer, to play on the JV team, and I learned that... Uh, Coach Zomerly 
Uh, well, he, he let us know very quickly who was in charge and what his expectations were. And he used you know, choice words to motivate us that were, I think, loud enough for the rest of the neighborhood to hear. Um, and extended practices would motivate us. Uh, during games, he, he would throw his hat down in frustration over a missed tackle. Now keep in mind here, I'm 5'6", 125 as a 10th grader, and I'm trying to take down somebody like Heath. Um, that's not, <laughs> I'm usually getting run over first uh, before that happens. And so he, you know, he's grabbing my face mask and screaming, you know, grow faster or something like that. I, I don't remember. Um, but I did not appreciate this man. Um, he, he was mean, he was hard-headed, um, unreasonable. I, I didn't want to spend time with him. Now, the only impression I had of Coach Z was there on the gridiron. I didn't know him off the field, really, at all. And then over time, you know, once the football season was done, and you know, I'd see him periodically if there was a school function or something like that, and actually, um, he seemed quite reasonable in those circumstances. And even kind. Now, that is not a word I would have put with Coach Z. My impression was, was skewed. I wasn't getting the whole picture of who this man was. And I think sometimes our impression of God can be skewed um, or just not very well informed. We come to these, these false impressions or, or conclusions of God because we don't have the whole picture. Or we haven't paid attention to what God shows us about Himself. Much of the time, our views about God and who He is have been shaped by our relationship with our parents or those in authority over us. If we've been sort of beaten into submission most of our lives by this authority, then that's how we're going to relate to God. It's how, how He's going to deal with us. You know, He'll lay out His commands and He punishes us when we get out of line. If we've had no real authority... You know, no hard and fast rules. You know, kind of whatever, whatever we want. And then probably that's how God relates to us as well. You know, He's there if we need us or if we need Him, but otherwise, you know, we're kind of on our own, making our own way. So we can have some skewed views of God. And even as I make those statements, you know, I have in mind the one true Creator God, who has revealed Himself in the created order, and particularly in His Word to us. The God that we and every other human being has been made for, to worship, to enjoy forever. We know that that is a truth that is suppressed so often. We fashion all, of, all sorts of gods, but there's only one God who, can, who we've been made for. Only one God who can forgive. Only one God who can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. So it's important for us to ask, maybe, maybe more often than we do, who is the God of the Bible? What is He like? And this chapter really uh, helps us with this. Uh, Moses climbing back up the mountain to renew uh, this covenant relationship with the Lord and with His people. The desire of his heart is to see God's glory, to know Him more. That's our desire too. We've been made to know Him. 
to glorify, enjoy Him. The more we know of Him, the more we can glorify Him and enjoy Him. So Moses, the mediator, he makes uh, this request. As we've seen, we, we follow this, uh, this storyline here. And I think we can overlay our own experience, uh, our relationship to this God of the Bible. Uh, first, Moses must prepare to meet with God. Uh, then we hear this, this proclamation of God himself to Moses, and then uh, Moses will make that petition once again. So that's how we're going to we're going to look at these verses, the preparation, the proclamation, and the petition. The Lord's goodness is going to pass before Moses. He's been told that this would happen. He's been told how this would happen. He may be a little apprehensive, a little excited after hearing this. But before the Lord passes before him, there are some preparations that need to be made. Those original tablets, the moral law of God inscribed on those two tablets, they've been shattered, they've been broken. Picture that covenant that's been broken between God and His people. The Lord tells him to cut two new tablets. It may have been Moses doing this, it may have been another stonemason that he recruited to make these tablets. But just think of how, what kind of news this would be for Moses and for the people to see him with new tablets. That's incredibly good news. That is conveying that maybe, maybe this will be renewed. Maybe what has been shattered will be restored. That's what they're thinking as Moses you know, takes these blank slates up the mountain. Will, will God renew His covenant? Will He inscribe His Word again to us? That's their hope in this. So not just you know, grabbing a, a couple of stones from the pile and running up the mountain. This took some preparation. You know, very likely, we didn't read those words exactly, but it's very plausible that Moses had to go through that consecration that we read about in chapter 19. Washing himself, preparing to meet with the Lord. Um, you know, I think of the preparations that go into a wedding, certainly the months leading up to it, but in the, the wedding day itself. Um, Katie and I decided that on our wedding day, we did not want to, sound strange, we did not want to see each other until right before the ceremony. We wanted just that, that anticipation, that joy to, to build until we were ready to walk down the aisle. And she had gotten up very early that morning to prepare, much earlier than I did, but I'm not sure I slept at all, um, to prepare uh, for this. Moses must prepare for this meeting, for this unveiling of God and His glory on the mountain. There's also uh, the warning here, again, like we find in chapter 19, for those who are not prepared to come into the presence of the Holy One. Just think, the Lord has been giving Moses this instruction about, on this very thing, how the people were to come into the presence of God, how they were to worship. Um, holiness of God is a very real threat to the unholy. No person, no animal could come near this mountain. The Lord re repeats this, not because it's, it's just a big deal, because it's a life and death deal uh, for these people. And as we begin to understand and comprehend the holiness of God, you think of how remarkable it is that Moses could do what he did. That Moses could actually climb this mountain, come into the presence of God, hear God speak. When we read that 
the Lord had showed his favor to Moses, we're going, yeah, you better believe he did. Look at his mercy extended to him to come into the presence of God. Important reminder for us, God is the one who determines how he is to be approached. God determines how he is to be worshipped. So we don't come into his presence casually or flippantly. We come with reverence. We come with awe before the Holy One. Even though he is closer than a brother, that he wants us to come into his presence, to meet with us, he's still the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present creator. Certainly a category all his own. I think of passages like Isaiah chapter 40, Psalm 103, 104. Just, just soak in those chapters for a little while and you'll be humbled by the majesty, the power, the glory of God. So we prepare our hearts to meet with Him. We quiet our hearts in our own private worship. You know, maybe it's just a few moments of silence before you pray to the Lord. Or you're recalling a portion of Scripture, a portion that, that you're reading that puts you in that, that frame, focuses your thoughts. We prepare to meet with Him on a morning like this, coming in together for corporate worship. It's a heart preparation, which the body, they, our actions, follow our hearts. There may very well be a, a washing of our bodies and more rest for our bodies needed to come into the Lord's presence. You look forward to this. You prepare for this. Much like that wedding day, we, are, we will prepare accordingly for what it is we value and appreciate the most. Come into the presence of the Holy One with humility, with reverence, but we also come confidently. We read this in Hebrews 4. We can approach the throne of God boldly because it is a throne of grace. The throne of mercy. So how can we do that? How can we approach a holy one? Okay, the people couldn't even get close to this mountain because of their sin. But they had a mediator with whom the Lord was well pleased. A mediator who would go for them. We can only approach the living God through a mediator. Through Jesus and because of Jesus. He is the beloved Son with whom the Father is well pleased. And it's His favor. By faith is our favor as well before God. So we approach a holy God through the Son, bearing His name, robed in His righteousness. Hebrews 12 tells us that we worship, but we worship not in fear. We're not trembling before a mountain now, but through the, through the perfection of sacrifice of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. This is the only way, my friends. Jesus is the only way that this can happen. It's not just a big deal. It is a life and death deal for you, for me, for everyone you know. We meet with God in worship now by, by the power and presence of His Holy Spirit. And, you know, there is a meeting before the very face of the Holy God that is coming for every person. And there's preparation for that meeting. The preparation is to fix our gaze upon the mediator, upon Jesus. Faith in the completed work of Jesus on our behalf. Confession that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. 
when the meeting comes, there won't be time for that preparation. So if, that, if that's not part of your story yet, call on the name of the Lord Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved, whereby you can worship before the Holy One. So it's the desire of Moses to see the glory of God. Then we get to uh, verses 5 through 7. And there's almost no description about what Moses sees. Did you notice that? It's what he hears instead. The Lord speaks his name. He proclaims who he is and what he's like. One commentator said, the revelation of God is in terms of his attributes rather than his appearance. His attributes rather than appearance. For God to proclaim his name is to proclaim his nature. What he does cannot be separated from who he is. And it's that that same name that God revealed to Moses at that burning bush in chapter 3. He is the God who is, who always will be, always has been for his people. So Moses gets his own, he gets his own sermon on the mount right here. God passing before him in this cloud. God preaches his goodness, his infinite perfection to Moses. Now he is known, how that infinite perfection and holiness is known through his mercy, through his faithfulness. You know, I think we, we live by faith, not by sight. We live by, by faith, not by feeling. Moses is living by faith, not by sight. He wants to see God's glory, but what that means for him in these moments is to hear the word that God speaks. We must listen. We must hear the word of God if we want to know him more. So we hear the attributes in verse 6, the actions that necessarily follow in verse 7. He's merciful or compassionate and gracious. We've heard it already in our liturgy this morning, how those words are so often in the Bible lumped together. Compassionate and gracious. Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, Nehemiah 9, as we've heard, really becomes a working definition of who God is to his people. He's slow to anger, long to anger. It takes God a long time to get angry, which only underscores his patience with his people, abounding in steadfast love and and faithfulness. This is that, that hesed, that covenant Love, that loyalty that endures. Because of these attributes, because of that hesed, he keeps his love to a thousand generations. In other words, there, there is no end to the willingness and desire of God to bless his people. He's going to keep that covenant loyalty to a thousand, a thousand generations, even if his people don't, even if they break covenant with him. Even if they abandon him, he will not. The prophet Ezekiel speaks so powerfully of God's covenant love for his people, for his bride, a bride that, that would only play the prostitute, turn from him. But here's the language that God uses, Ezekiel 16. When I passed by you again and saw you, you were at the age of love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Can you hear the heart of God? 
You hear what he desires? His desire is to be with his people, to bless his people in covenant loyalty to him. He wants to forgive. He wants to extend his mercy. And he's entirely just in doing this. That, that kind of rubs us when we get to verse 7. We know God is just. We want him to be just. We, we need him to be just. But that means that my own sin is deserving judgment. That means I have to do business with a holy God. There are consequences for my sin, and that may very well affect others within the body. Harder for us to understand that. We live in a, in a time and a culture that is so individualized, so individualistic. You know, at this time, there, there actually were multiple generations. You may have three or four generations in the same tent, uh, living together uh, in this way. So that the sins of one generation would, in fact, affect multiple generations in the very near term. I think the people of the wilderness, in the wilderness, they're, they're exhibit A of this. You think of the little ones who are kind of wondering why mom and dad are throwing their jewelry in this pot or they're dancing around. What's going on? And so this and, and other further sin would mean a long time in the wilderness for them. God is just. He punishes the guilt of sins, which means if there's no repentance of, of sin from one generation to the next, and we see it just handed down and handed down, we can expect consequences. We can expect um, judgment for that. But it's the contrast here that I want you to see. The contrast, that's the main point. Sin has consequences. To the third and fourth generation but to a thousand generations the Lord will forgive and show His faithfulness, His covenant loyalty. That's where the emphasis is. On His desire to walk with His people, not in punishing for sin. And we find this same heart in the New Testament, Peter's second letter, which is where I, I hope to go next after we're uh, through with Exodus. He says that in relationship to God, in relation to judgment, God is Patient. He desires that none should perish. Entirely consistent with God's proclamation of His own name. When He says that He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, that is a con comprehensive, no-holds-barred forgiveness. He does this eagerly. He doesn't do this reluctantly. He literally lifts, carries the burden of our sin. And that's all kinds of sin. So there's no sin that can take you too low. There's no sin that can take you too far away so that God's forgiveness cannot reach in and bear that load. You know, sometimes we think that God forgives because, well, He has to. That's what He does. You know, and after the hundredth time that we've confessed, yes, that particular sin, that maybe His forgiveness is a little slower. a little more reluctant. And yet, that is how we would respond to each other. When God's children run to Him and confess their sin, He is eager to forgive. He loves it. He wants us to know His forgiveness, to live in His mercy. He tells us that's who He is. And so God reveals His glory to Moses. Whatever we might 
attached to the nature of God and what he is like, his mercy has to be right at the very top. He's compassionate. He is just. This compassion and justice, they're in perfect balance. So do we want to know the God of the Bible? We must listen to the God of the Bible. To his own proclamation of who he is. Gracious, compassionate. But God is not a God if he does not punish sin. On his essay entitled God in the Dock, this is C.S. Lewis, he says, mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. That is the important paradox. As there are plants that will flourish only in mountain soil, so it happens that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. Perfectly balanced, mercy and justice. So when we hold partial truths about God, that's when we get in trouble. Um, you know, sometimes we'll hear things like, I can't believe in in the God of the Old Testament, so mean and vindictive and harsh. You know, I worship a God of love and mercy. Have you been in that place? Or I, I don't really need the Old Testament. Or I don't spend as much time in the Old Testament. I'm more of a New Testament believer. I follow Jesus. Do you hear the danger there? Do you hear, do you hear a problem? We cannot pit the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, the God the Father and God the Son, as if somehow the God of the Old Testament can be ignored or, or sidelined. Different God in the New Testament. My friends, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament in the face of Jesus Christ. I've mentioned Hebrews a couple of times already. Here's how this letter starts in referring to Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So the God who tells Moses who He is is the Word made flesh in Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. He is everything that God revealed to Moses. He is compassionate and gracious. I think of Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus sees the crowd. says He had compassion on them. He sympathizes with our weakness as the God-man. John 1 says He is full of grace and truth. Romans 5, God has given us an abundance of grace in Jesus. Was Jesus slow to anger? We know He got angry. And when you take a whip and you drive animals and people out of a temple, He was angry. But consider His patience with the disciples with the crowds, explain again and again who he was, what he had come to do, and they just don't get it. He's patient with them, patient with us. Everything Jesus did showed his steadfast love, faithfulness. With Jesus is full forgiveness. He forgave the sinner, the tax collector. He forgave his disciples. He forgave even his enemies, including those who nailed him to that cross. If we want to know God and see His glory, we look to Jesus. So Moses had to prepare. God proclaims His name. And we see Moses' response here, his petition uh, once again, that God would forgive him. That he, He's identifying with the people. God, forgive us. Forgive our iniquity. But that's verse 9. Then verse 8. Verse 8 comes before that. Uh, Moses sees this theophany, uh, this cloud, 
hears the name of the Lord, and then he has you know, this natural response when something like this happens. He's on his face in worship. Okay, you didn't have to think about this. You didn't have to get out a manual. When God reveals himself this way, uh, it is natural. He quickly bows his head toward the earth. You know, I think of a time long before Moses in Job's experience. You know, after so many of his questions processing what it is that had happened to him in life, and when Job hears the word of the Lord, this is what he says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. In the last chapter, I'm going to read a little bit more. Here's how Job answers the Lord. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think it would almost put those words in Moses' mouth at this point on the mountain. He gets a glimpse of God's glory. Speaking of things too wonderful for him to know. His response is to worship just as Job did. So it's only after this worship, after this adoration and praise, comes the petition. And so with this language, Moses is, he's claiming the name. He's taking God up on who he says he is, on his offer to forgive, to take his people back as his treasured possession. We learned in Exodus 4 that Israel is the firstborn son of God. They are God's inheritance, heirs of his blessing. You see, you find such beautiful fulfillment in Jesus, the only begotten son, the true heir, the true and faithful Israelite. Jesus is heir of the Father's blessing, which belongs to the church in union with him. So when we confess, when we turn from our sin and, and return to our covenant Lord, we can have every confidence, assurance of his forgiveness. We are, we are showing him his nature, taking him up on who he says he is. And how much more is this forgiveness sure is our inheritance, both ours and God's, secure in Jesus Christ? So we see Moses in this posture of humility. He knows his own unworthiness in the presence of a holy God. I think it's helpful in our own worship. I mean, if, if in worship it's God who's getting the glory. It's Him that we're bowing to. The attention is not on us in worship. It is on Him. He alone uh, is worthy. Um, it's how we open our worship. How we begin our prayers. It leads us to confession uh, and petition. Worshiping in the presence of God. Because He's always present with us. Dwelling us by His Spirit. We should have a, a posture of adoration and worship in all of life. Not just in this hour on Sunday. All compassion, entirely just. And those are the attributes that are front and center at the cross of Jesus. The cross that satisfies God's justice. Because of this, we know His mercy. Now for all who, who look to Christ, who trust in Christ, there is full forgiveness. He is the only one who can forgive 
So when we see through eyes of faith the glory of God in Jesus, we know the God of the Bible. We know the God of all the Bible who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord God, we are so thankful that this is who you are. That you are compassionate and merciful, that you are entirely just. That we have a mediator who has gone before us, whom you are entirely pleased. Lord, continue to show us more of yourself through your word. Help us to listen, to worship you with such a great proclamation of who you are. We thank you that you have called us your own. You've made us your children in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.